church right on my heel without a leash or anything. And she she did it, I think, according to the clicking of, of, of the crozier, as I can't tell. Mm-hmm. Seriously. And then when I get up front, she found a place that she wanted to uh, kind of lie down and make herself at home for the service, and she'd do that. And then I tell folks that that when I, when I got up to preach, she did exactly what everybody else in the church did. She falls sound asleep. <laughs> so, perfect church dog. And then, as you all recall, she knew how to get herself out of church and, uh, and then stand by the door and greet each of you as you were. I miss her. Uh, first, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Marie and I have not only read, marked, learned, and inwardly digested them all, as, uh, as uh, uh, they say about our, our uh, scriptures, but I uh, have also passed them back and forth between the two of us. Did you see what so-and-so? So these have been handled very much in the Howard household, and we are very grateful. Grateful uh, to you personally and to our Lord for putting us into relationship with you. Several of you asked about Marie. Uh, and I'm not sure what she's up to tonight, but I do know she was on the phone. It sounded like counseling some this afternoon. I'm just suspecting that she's going to see whoever it was she spent the afternoon with on the phone tonight. I don't know, though. She told me she had a subsequent engagement. So. <laughs> or she said the same thing to me when I'd ask her out. <laughs> Let us, uh, let us continue now with a brief word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, St. Paul tells us in his letter to the Romans that we don't know how to pray, and indeed we don't, but mercifully assist us tonight as we talk about prayer and its importance in our lives and in our relationship with each other and with you. And all of this we pray in the strong name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Um, I want to talk about prayer tonight. I set out to talk about it five weeks ago, and, uh, and the same Marie Howard was following me to the car that night and grabbed me before I go. But she said, you're not going anywhere. Get back in. Literally, she stopped me from coming. This was five weeks ago tonight when I was going to talk to you about prayer. She told me that uh, that I wasn't fit to go anywhere, much less to to come here and talk to you all about prayer. And she made me go go home, and I think she called uh, uh, Father Gibbs and told him that I couldn't come under her her orders. And I wish I could say that for the last 50 years, I've only done things when she permitted them. But I will say I've gotten into trouble every time I did. How about that? Can you men understand that? All of you. Do I hear an amen? You all remember Garrison Keillor. Who remembers Garrison? You remember uh, Lake Wobegon and, and the stories, the tales he would tell? He wrote a book called, of all things, We Are Still Married. I guess people asked him about him and his wife. You know? <laughs> we Are Still Married. That was the name of the book. Stories and Letters. Uh, and it was published in 1989. I was in... Uh, 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 not, not quite yet in New York City, but a few years later would have the, uh, the privilege of meeting and actually spending a little time with Garrison Keillor, who then lived in New York, having left Lake, Lake Wobegon, uh, uh, Minnesota. <laughs> he was a master storyteller, 
and a very funny guy. Troubled in a lot of ways, but nonetheless fun to be around. Uh, and in, in this book, We Are Still Married, he wrote about a surprising experience he had in New York City when he went to visit the Church of the Holy Apostles there in New York City. Any of you familiar with that? It's a grand old historic church that has a wonderful ministry to the poor, uh, to street people, the hungry, and he thinks about that and talks about it in this particular part of his book. And somehow his words capture for me the call of Lent for us in the Episcopal Church, which is a call to authentic gospel living. At its deepest, the call is to honest to goodness soundness of faith as individuals and as a community. It's a call to us to become that which we already are, the body of Christ. Don't let anybody deceive you into thinking that we can become somehow more the body of Christ than we are right now. Because the moment those nails pierced Jesus' hands on the cross and he shed his blood for you and me, we became the body of Christ. And by our acceptance and our faith in him, we will remain that for eternity. It's a call to let go of the false self, to let go of the false church, and to come home to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the way Keeler describes what he found at Church of the Apostles. <clears throat> to me and my little radio congregation, a late Wobegonian moving to Minneapolis and turning Episcopalian was a case of social climbing straight up the hill, no doubt about it. <laughs> I've got a great joke about that, I'll tell you later. <laughs> Our clear picture of Episcopalians was of wealthy people. You all heard people characterize us that way at times? Maybe some of us who are older, who don't have as much hair and what we have is gray, can remember that from our youth when the image of the Episcopal Church was, do any of you can remember, we were called the Republican Party at Prayer. <laughs> now that's back in the 40s and 50s. When I, when I was growing up in the 50s, we were still, today you would hardly say that about the Episcopal Church. But at any rate, our clear picture of Episcopalians was of wealthy people, Yale graduates, Worshiping God in extremely good taste. <laughs> Episcopalian was the church in wingtips. The church of scotch and soda. So when I moved to New York and walked into Holy Apostles, I was surprised to see no suits. Nobody was well dressed. Nobody was well dressed. A congregation of a hundred souls on Lower Ninth Avenue. Lower West Side. A church with no parking lot, which was in need of paint, where the sanctuary ceiling showed rain damage, but which nevertheless managed to support and operate a soup kitchen that fed a thousand New Yorkers every day. More than a million to date. And he's writing in the late 80s. Black faces in the sanctuary, old people, Exiles from the Midwest, he was pointing at himself. The lame and the halt, divorced ladies, gay couples, 
a real good analogy of the faith. A real good analogy of the faith. I felt glad to be there. When we stood for prayers, bringing slowly to mind the goodness and the poverty in our lives, the lives of others and the life to come, it brought tears to your eyes. And here's the line I love. The simple way Episcopalians pray. The simple way Episcopalians pray. So tonight I want to reflect with you for just a few minutes about the way we, play, we pray and what we as Episcopalians believe we are doing when we do pray. Do you have a prayer book there somewhere? Yes. Sure you do. <laughs> Take one back of the pew if you like, and, and, and I'll point a couple of things out to you. First of all, look at the edge of the prayer book. What do you see? You see a brown line down the, about a third of the way in? Okay, now just hold the book by the, by, the, uh, by the spine and open it where those pages are. And I'll bet it, flowed, it comes open to, what, 355? Am I right? Yep. Is that the one you're, you're so present? And what's at 355? It's the one we pray every week together. How about that? That's the prayer we pray together every week. Our prayer book is so well made, the publishers in New York City know that if they paint a brown line down the edge of the book and design the spine so it'll crease open right there, that you'll be ready for Sunday services. That's now that's Episcopalianism at its best. <laughs> Encouraging corporate prayer. All that's a joke, of course. It opens there because you've opened it there for generations. That's why it falls open there, of course. Our uh, presiding bishop, uh, Michael Curry, tells a story about early days as an Episcopal priest in, I think it was Winston-Salem, North Carolina fine southern city where I spent three years of my life in law school, where Marie and I lived when we were first married, and where she started telling me when to go and when to come and when I was too sick to go anywhere. That was where it started. Okay. Michael Curry belonged to a little interdenominational, ecumenical, pastors, preachers, priests, rabbis, I guess rabbis, and rectors, a prayer group that met every Wednesday afternoon. And he was late getting there one, one Wednesday, and obviously all the other pastors who didn't have books of common prayer had talked about him and, 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 and the Episcopal Church and, and the fact that we, we had our prayers in a book. So Michael Curry walked into the Bible study with the other pastors, and the, the chairman of the group said to him, he said, well, well, well Michael, so glad you're here. Sorry you're a few minutes late, but we've, we've waited to say our opening prayer. And we're all curious and want to know more about that book you're using and, 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 and some of the prayers. And they, and they said, well, well Michael, uh, why don't you start us today for our meeting with a prayer from that book, if you would. So he, he says that he, he said, well, well, I'll be glad to give me a moment and let me find something appropriate. And so he, he sort of pretended to struggle and looked, <laughs> looked here and looked there. And finally he said, well, why don't we try this one? 
He said, our father, who, who art in heaven. And, and he, was, he was scrupulously reading the book as he did it. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And then he had to tell them, you know, this is a great book. We, we love this book. We use this book, as I've just demonstrated to you how much you use the book. Look at all that's unused, though. More about that later. But, uh, but the point is, 60% of the contents of this book are directly from the pages of Holy Scripture. They are psalms. They are passages of Scripture themselves. They are prayers adapted from the Bible. And, and when you get right down to it at the core in the center of the book, when you open it, one important thing about the prayer book, it may, it may fall open every Sunday of your life at 355 where we have our service of Holy Communion. The last service you'll ever attend in this church, God willing, it falls open to the burial service. That's the center of the book. Because at our burial, only half of our life's journey is completed. The other half of the life's journey comes after the burial service when we become citizens at last of God's heavenly kingdom. So we Episcopalians may pray in a simple way. It's a democratic way. We don't, we don't exhibit grand uh, eloquence ourselves. We don't rely on our imaginations or on our special knowledge of God and relationship with God that's any different from anyone else's. Having a prayer book is the most democratic form of worship that you can have. That you can have. It's Bible-based, it's clergy-led, it's lay-led, and it is inspired inspired by God's Holy Spirit and, 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 and with the intent of God for us to use it both privately and in public worship. Our prayer book and the Bible, it's a biblical view, sees a picture of God as a personal being, a personal being who alertly listens to our prayers and responds to them. We're told in, uh, in, in, in the picture of how Jesus uh, teaches the apostles uh, and his disciples how to pray. They, from the very beginning, make specific and personal requests for God to act. Has anybody done that today? <laughs> Made a specific and personal request for God to act and to do what you wanted to do? I know I have about a half a dozen times. The most famous prayer, the Lord's Prayer, the one that Michael Curry turned to, Jesus is giving spontaneously his response to the disciples' request for help. They came to him and said, teach us how to pray. The apostles of John, the disciples of John are told how to pray. Tell us how to pray. And Jesus introduces the model prayer for us, acknowledging that God, what? Already knows our needs in advance. When you pray, he tells the disciples, don't keep on babbling like pagans. Ever heard of pagan babble? Remember when the, uh, when the, when the pagans started demonstrating in, in Ephesus uh, because Paul was there and was threatening the silversmith industry? 
that was threatening and in turn the production of those little silver statues of Diana, Artemis, and, uh, and so the, the, the pagans take to, to the streets and there ain't much you can say about Diana as a goddess. You can't preach a 30-minute sermon at morning prayer on Diana. All the pagans had to say about uh, a great is Artemis, goddess of the Ephesians. And they keep saying that through the whole march. Great is Artemis, goddess of the Ephesians. That's all you can say about it. Keep making our statues so we can keep selling them. And there will all be pure silver and they'll be worth millions in a few years. That's all you, the only good thing you can say. Don't be like them. Your father knows what you need before you ask, Jesus tells the disciples. This then is how you should pray. And he says, ask and it will be given to you. And the prayer offered in faith, he tells us, will make the sick person well. The prayer of righteous man is powerful and effective. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. Underscoring these lavish promises, the Bible, the Old Testament, tells us of prophets who pray for physical healing and even the resuscitation of dead bodies. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Hannah, Elizabeth, praying against their infertility. Daniel, praying in a den of lions that his, that his even as his three friends had prayed in the midst of fire. God sending the prophet Isaiah, the most God-connected person of his day, to inform King Hezekiah of his imminent death. Hezekiah prayed for one more time. Before Isaiah left the palace, God changed his mind, granting Hezekiah 15 more years of life. In a sort of negative proof of the power of prayer, three times God commanded Jeremiah to stop praying. God wanted no alteration in his plan to punish a rebellious nation. Prayer had, after all, softened God's resolve before, and God didn't want to have his resolve softened. He says, don't pray that anymore. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned, the prophet Jonah proclaimed to that heathen city. But when God saw what they did and how they turned their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened. Four times the Old Testament reports that God relented or changed his mind in response to a request and each shift delayed punishment. Now, we tend to place God's activities in a different category from natural or human activity, and rightly so. The Bible intends to draw it all together, though. Somehow God is at work in all of creation, all of history, to bring about his goals. The act of prayer somehow is seen biblically to bring together God and us. Eternity, time, and all the mystery that, that, that those things speak of to us. I view prayer as a way of asking a timeless God to intervene, intervene more directly in our time-bound life on earth. Think about, think about time for a second. Time was created by God. Time doesn't exist without God having 
created all that is in the first place. Nor does space. Space does it. We, we can't imagine anything without time, wherever my watch is, and space. Yet God doesn't live in those dimensions just as God doesn't live in three dimensions or four or five or six. God is dimensionless and he created time. So if God created time, just as he created you and me, can't God intervene in it? Can't he make the sun stand still over Jericho? Can't he, can't he turn back history, if that's what he desires to do in some miraculous way? Can't he remember Sunday's God? Can't he bring Lazarus back to life? Time and space are not dimensions by which God is bound. And here's the interesting, scary part of the good news. We talk about eternity. Someday, you and I, by the grace of God and Him alone, His free gift to us, will live without time and without space. It's unimaginable. We simply don't have the... Maybe, maybe uh, uh, Albert Einstein began to get some grasp on it in, in his own way. But none of us, unless you're a lot brighter than anyone I've ever known, and I've known a couple of bright people in my time, none of us can imagine life outside of time and life outside of space. Yet that's where God dwells and that's where God hears our prayers and therefore our prayers are not bound by any of the boundaries we want to put around them. God will do what God will do, but Scripture, Jesus, tells us that God listens. He listens because sound, which was also something He created, reaches His ears in some, again, miraculous and supernatural way. Somehow, the act of prayer brings together God and us, eternity and time. We're asking a timeless, a spaceless God to intervene more directly in our time-bound and space-oriented lives. We're told by Scripture to pray for the sick, for the victims of tra tragedy, for the safety of the persecuted church, for the wealth of the church, incidentally, you want a good stewardship sermon? Preach about the role of prayer in stewardship. Just like the role of prayer in marriage, the role of prayer in, in, in grief or in health or in rejoicing or at baptisms or at merit. Think about what, what your prayers mean in each of the great events of life. Not least of which being stewardship. Um, remember this great prayer that God Praise to the Father, that Jesus prays to the Father for his disciples. I am coming to you now. I am coming to you now, he says to the Father in heaven. But I say these things while I'm still in the world. What's he telling you? Bound by space and time, about to die on a cross. They are not of the world any more than I am of the world. As if to underscore his point, he says again, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. That you protect them from the evil one. 
They are not of the world even as I am not of it. In other words, Father, they belong to the spaceless, timeless, unbounded life of eternity to which you are going to admit them. For 33 years, Jesus stripped himself of the prerogatives of God. Read Philippians, including omniscience and timelessness. He once admitted he didn't know the time of the final judgment and healing of the earth, though the Father did. What's he saying is, I have agreed to be limited and constricted and bound during my life as a man among you. But in this one final prayer, he bridges time and eternity, recalling for a moment his stunning existence before accepting life on this planet. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. The glory I had, Jesus says, with you. No space, no time, no hopelessness, no despair, nothing that couldn't be done before the world began. After that, Jesus prays still more in Gethsemane. And the apostles do what? Fall asleep, right? He prays on, on the cross. And what happens in, in his, really the final prayer of his life? Lama, lama, sabachthani. He's, he's saying, Father, why, why, why have you betrayed me? Why have you sacrificed me? And interestingly... He reverts in that prayer as he does several times in Scripture to the language of his earliest youth, of his childhood. The kingdom of heaven belongs to who? The little children. And to the childlike. Jesus becomes childlike in the moment of death on the cross. Still at prayer, still united to God in, the, in that essential central relationship of his life, part of the Godhead himself, and yet recognizing his humanity and his impending death, he speaks in the language of his childhood. Remember the great theologian Karl Barth, maybe the greatest theologian of the 20th century. I'd like to think so along with C.S. Lewis. And they came to him, the story goes, on his deathbed, interviewed them, somebody from the New York press or the Berlin press or something, came to him and said, uh, uh, Dr. Barr, can you, can you tell us now what the single most important revelation you have had in all of your study of Scripture and your lifelong ministry and teaching at great universities around the world? And he said, certainly, I can tell you the one central truth that I have learned is this. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible. The language of his childhood, fulfilling instruction and teaching to us that the kingdom of God will indeed belong to the childlike. Well, the disciples were accustomed to presenting their questions, complaints, and requests to Jesus in person at that time, but they'd have to fall back on a different approach prayer. Of all the means God could have used, prayer may to you and me seem the most unknowable, the sort of slipperiest, the easiest to ignore. So it will be for you and me unless we really believe Jesus was right in this claim of his that somehow prayer would be essential to our relationship with the Father and with him in the power of the Holy Spirit.
Why pray? God doesn't need our wisdom or our knowledge. He doesn't even need the information contained in our prayers. He's already told us the Father knows what we need before we ask Him. But by inviting us into partnership, into friendship with Him, He invites us into a close relationship. God is love, said the Apostle John. He doesn't merely have love or feel love. He is love. God cannot not love. God cannot not love. And as such, God is yearning for us, yearning for us to come to Him and to be with Him with these creatures that somehow He's made in His image. Don't be anxious about anything. Words for my life at this moment. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. How can we make a request known to God who already knows? Well, relationship is the key. Closeness. C.S. Lewis seemed fascinated by questions posed by prayer, especially how a sovereign, all-knowing God could ever listen and respond to our prayers. As a young Christian in England, he had evidently felt embarrassed about praying for his brother Warren, who was overseas when he heard of a Japanese attack on Shanghai. What difference could one puny prayer make against the inevitability of fate or providence? Can you identify with that question? Why do I really need to pray for that? What will be, will be. But C.S. Lewis went on to explore that topic in a number of his books and essays and letters. He once played the role of a skeptic and asked the question. Uh, he said, I... I I don't think it at all likely that God requires the ill-informed and contradictory of advice of us humans as to how to run the world. If He is all-wise, as you say, doesn't He know what's already best? And if He's all-good, won't He do it whether we pray or not? That's the skeptic. But in reply, Lewis said that you could use the same argument against any human activity, not just prayer, why bother to wash your hands? If God intends them to be clean, if it's good for your health for them to be clean and polite for them, they'll come clean without your washing them, right? Why ask for the salt at dinner? Why put on your boots? Why do anything? Why wear an overcoat on a cold day? God could have arranged things so that our bodies care for themselves, nourish themselves. Knowledge enters our brains without studying. Wouldn't you love that? <laughs> Umbrellas magically appear to protect us from rainstorms. But God chose a different way of doing business. God sent His Son to us as a human being. A human being who in turn prayed to God because that's the way God designed you and me to live. That's the way at our best that we have a partnership, a relationship with Him. The skeptic then, according to Lewis, is objecting not merely to prayer, but to the basic rules of creation. And one of the rules of creation is that God created the universe in such a manner that we can make a difference in it. We can cut down all the trees, whether it's good for us or not. We can pave over all the earth whether it's good for us or not. We can have dirty hands at supper 
whether our mother and father like it or not. But what God wants is for us to be in relationship with him and to seek that blessing which is represented by our nearness to him. I know I've talked to you before about the, the Beatitudes and um, if we, I think we talked about that several years ago in some detail and did a little word study with you on Hebrew, particularly one important word in the Beatitudes, the word Beatitude itself translated from the Hebrew, which is the word Ashar. And that, that word is translated in our prayer book, or in, in the Bible actually, as blessing. Blessed are you when. Blessed are you when the worst thing you can imagine happens to you. When you're mourning, when you're, when you're in poverty, when you're uh, 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 sick and and, and hungry and, and, and grieving and you just got in the pink slip at work and, and your, your husband, your wife just told you that he's shuffling off to Buffalo. Blessed are you then. Why is that? Why is that a blessing? Well, it, it's not, as I like to describe it, pulling a handle on the great cosmic slot machine of life and coming up three cherries. It's, it's not finding the parking place outside the building and the shopping center that you want to visit that day. That's not what blessing means in the biblical sense. In the biblical sense, from the Hebrew, the word ashar means to be where God wants you to be, to come closer to God. Now think about the worst times in your life and where God put you in those moments. Prayer. I'm sick, I'm grieving, I'm, I'm, I've just lost my job, I've just had my first heart attack, I've just been attacked by, by a bunch of clergy and people going berserk trying to ruin the church. It's a blessing. Why? Because I'm wearing out my blue jeans praying. It's a blessing because those things bring us nearer to God, and they do. That's why they're the blessing. They put us where God wants us to be, because where God wants us to be is in a closer, more prayerful relationship with Him. Now, our written prayers, I've already talked about that, what a gift they are. Let me just drop a footnote on that. C.S. Lewis preferred written prayers for his own private devotions. And you may too. Check out the prayer book. There's some devotions for individuals and families that you may find useful with your family or or in your marriage, I always tell married couples that in pre, well, before marriage, pre-marriage couples, that one important part of their life together is to pray daily together and to do it out loud. Don't just sit there and pray silently to each other, but share the thoughts you're sharing with God with one another in prayer. And I've been amazed couples have been married now 20, 30 years. I said that to as a younger priest come back and thank me. They said there have been moments when that's rescued their marriage. And I would encourage you all to think about it. The prayers in that book are useful for that purpose. And every one of them can be, can be used in terms of, of your current life. Lord, we do, not how, we do not know how to please you. Therefore, mercifully grant us your grace in order that we might please you. How about that as a prayer for a, a wayward husband? How about that for a prayer for 
a self-involved wife. How about that as a prayer for an angry parishioner or church member? Lord, I don't know how to please you. Now, mercifully grant that I might have the grace to do so. Straight from the prayer book, written incidentally in its original form by Thomas Cranmer, when 15-something. Getting back, coming around, and I'm about to close. It's the simple way Episcopalians pray. Not showy, not ostentatious. Words on the page have been refined, changed, honed, but are essentially the same ones that Cranmer wrote based on Scripture four or five hundred years ago, four hundred years ago. Mostly directly from Scripture, all of it inspired by the Holy Spirit. So, had I delivered this talk to you five weeks ago when I first set up to be here, I was going to propose to each of you as a Lenten devotion and discipline, as a form of piety, to use the theme of this Lent here at Church of Our Savior, the discipline of freedom, in order to focus and refocus on your prayer life. And especially on the use of that prayer book in connection with it. To pick the book up, to look at it, to thumb through it, discover things you don't know. If you don't own one, then buy one. Don't steal one of these. <laughs> Keep it on your bedside table or kitchen table. And by the end of Lent, make it your, make it your discipline for this Lent. Don't give up chocolate, Coca-Cola. Lord knows this Lent, don't give up Jenner Scotch. But <laughs> give up. Here's my, here, this is going to be my proposal for you, Lent. Give up owning a prayer book that has just one soiled mark around the edge. Give up owning a prayer book that only opens to one spot in it. Resolve to have a half a dozen, maybe eight or ten spots that are beginning to show some soiling from your fingers. Six or seven, eight spots where it, it just falls open to a particular psalm or to uh, a... A, a different worship service, maybe to the prayers in the back. Maybe you'll find some of those are different thanksgivings. Maybe even, imagine this, to morning prayer or evening prayer with your family. Every You, you might soul three or four prayer books doing that. <laughs> and have them where they just break open at all kinds of not just interesting, but life-giving places that can change your life. Too late to do it this Lent. You get a start on it in the next week. Holy Week's a pretty good time to pick this up and begin to discover it. But as a Lenten devotion, as a way to freedom through discipline, I propose to you tonight, late as I may be because I was sick and my wife saved me, <laughs> I propose to you that you begin to really earnestly, wholeheartedly, and in a spirit-driven sort of way, use your book of common prayer. So, you've got two minutes before 7.29. Maybe. Maybe. you with prayer before you leave tonight. 
I would be grateful and moved and thank you. So we would ask you to come up if you desire. Where would you like for me to be? This is perfect right here. All right. Okay. Don't worry about crushing me. <laughs> There's purple. That'll make a nice reset. Come on up, folks. Plenty of room. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you for Bishop Howard, our chief pastor and shepherd. You have led him by the Holy Spirit to serve your people in this diocese, to build up your church, to proclaim the gospel, to celebrate the sacraments, to ordain our pastors, to set aside our lay ministers, all to the glory of Christ alone. We pray that together we may continue to exemplify in word and deed the gospel of your Son. Grant that we may continue to serve you in the church on earth and be brought to rejoice in eternal life. Lord, we pray to you also for Marie. We pray for you to protect and guide her. She is a source of strength and grace for our diocese. We thank her for all she does to support Bishop Howard in their ministry together. We pray that you watch over her and shield her from adversity or harm. We pray that you will continue to bless her with joy, love, good health, and all the good things that come only from you. We ask that you grant her peace, comfort, and protection at all times. May she always be surrounded by your loving light and steady presence. Draw our hearts to you. Guide our minds. Fill our imaginations. Control our wills that we may be wholly yours, utterly dedicated unto you. And then use us, we pray as you will, and always to your glory and the welfare of your people. Through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you, thank you, thank you. God bless you all. Stay where you are and let me say the following words, which I will remember. God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every work that he would have you do to do his will making in you those things which are impossible in time and space, possible in your life and the lives of those you love and in your church through Him. And may the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be amongst you and remain with you always. Amen. God bless you. Good night. Thank you so much. Thank you for your prayers. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Amen. Amen.